It's all quiet in the underground bunker. Doors closed, locks bolted. But the great one isn't just resting on his laurels. He's making sure your weekend is even better by giving you his best. This is the best of Mark Levin. It's very difficult to follow the logic of the American Marxist. The Democrat Party and the media truly is. We had a uh, person testifying, I believe it was the director of the Office of Management and Budget, but maybe it was another person. And it was a she, and she kept using the phrase, birthing person. She would not use the phrase woman or lady. She was even asked about that, said it was disrespectful. Birthing person. Of course, I've spent months mocking it. Birthing person. In our schools, children are being taught that it's not what is between your legs that matters. It's what's between your ears when it comes to genitalia. It's what you think you are. This bizarre, perverse ideology... It's been imposed throughout our bureaucracy, our military, our school systems. We even have debates over bathrooms and changing areas and in gym rooms. Even if you sign up for a uh, for an airline ticket, male, female, other, whatever it is. And yet now when it comes to the nomination of somebody to the United States Supreme Court, we're very specific when it comes to Joe Biden. A black woman. Excuse me? A black woman. Not a black birthing person. Which is what the administration had pressed and what the administration official had said. Now it's a black woman. An actual woman. Not because this individual thinks it is a woman, but because their genitalia, their biological genitalia, indicates that this person is a woman. It's really quite confusing, isn't it, Mr. Producer? Now, Biden says he wants to appoint the first black woman to the Supreme Court. But he only wants to appoint certain black women to the Supreme Court. Obviously, those that agree with his ideology and activism. Okay, got it. But the next question is, what if the individual is a black person by interracial marriage? Does that count? What if they're one-eighth white? Does that count? What if they're black and Hispanic, an intersectional situation? Is that okay? Notice how little discussion there is about qualifications and substance. Jonathan Turley makes an excellent point over on Twitter. You know, I like Jonathan Turley. I don't know him. I've never talked to him. I've never interviewed him. But he said, Jen Psaki today just reaffirmed that the president will only consider a black woman for the next nomination. A threshold gender and race condition that the court itself has found unconstitutional for schools and unlawful for private businesses. But it doesn't matter, of course. The Biden administration doesn't have to comply with anything. The American Marxist doesn't have to comply with anything. The media do not have to comply with anything. We haven't had an Asian American on the court. Have we? We haven't had a male Hispanic on the court. Don't give me Cardozo. Have we? I mean, we can go down a whole list of what would be firsts, I believe. Now, here would be a first... If a modern Democrat president would nominate somebody 
who is faithful to the Constitution. That would be pretty cool, don't you think? I mean, we haven't had an illegal alien sit on the Supreme Court. To the best of my knowledge, we haven't had a lesbian on the Supreme Court or a gay man on the Supreme Court. All kinds of firsts, if you ask me. Folks, this is the Supreme Court of the United States. There's nine members. It is a court that has involved itself in damn near everything. Whether you're black or white, red or brown, yellow or albino. When the court reaches a decision, that decision can affect your life, can affect your family, can affect this country forever. So isn't it more important that the individual stand for the Constitution? Isn't that the purpose? I understand Washington plays these games. I understand the media play these games. I understand major corporations play these games. I understand Hollywood plays these games. But out on the street, in the community, in the neighborhood, where people live and work, Doesn't it matter what the individual actually stands for when it comes to the notion of adjudicating very important cases that can affect everybody in this country? And yet we haven't heard one syllable about this so far. Not one. Names are being thrown around, names you've never heard of before. People who either Obama or Biden have appointed to various federal positions. That's the qualification. So they want to be a little bit more specific. They want a left-wing activist black woman who they likely appointed to a prior position. That really tightens the field, doesn't it? That really tightens the field. So now the Supreme Court is treated the way the admissions policies are treated at Harvard University. Asians may not apply. Jews may not apply. Whites may not apply. Blacks are on the the wrong side of their ideology. They may not apply either. Just certain people are qualified. By their physical nature. You know who should be most concerned about this, folks? Minorities. Jews. Hare Krishna. Muslims. Blacks. Hispanics. Minorities. Because this is no way to run a republic. You want an individual on the court who's going to comply with their oath, who's going to follow their oath. That's all. Will that be the test? No. Even when they narrow the selection to a black woman, that black woman is going to have to be of the left. They'll say she's a moderate the way they lied about Joe Biden. The way they lied about Merrick Garland. The way they lie all the time in the media and in the Democrat Party. But the truth is, she'll be black, she'll be a woman, but she'll also be a leftist. And that's really what they want. So can we stop with this birthing person stuff? No. Can we stop with the bathrooms and the gymnasiums now? And the No. No. We're going to keep that up. We're going to keep that up. Can we stop with indoctrinating our children about these various perverse ideologies? 
and the transitioning and genitalias and what you do with genitalias and pronouns and no, 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 no. The goal is to destroy the family. The nuclear family. But when we appoint people to high position like the Supreme Court, then we can resort to the throwback language. They call a woman a woman. Not because the person thinks he or she's a woman, but because she actually is a woman. Go figure. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. Are you an individual or business owner facing the heavy burden of back taxes, levies, or wage garnishments? Life's challenges, especially those brought on by the economic impact of COVID-19 and inflation, can take a toll on your financial well-being. Now, the IRS has eliminated over a billion dollars in tax penalties and interest for back taxes. America First Tax Group is here to help you claim your share of these billions in tax relief before the IRS can claim the government's share and clamp down. Call them now, 800-806-1299. The IRS has people working to collect your money, but it's time to turn the tables, folks. America First Tax Group is a full-service tax boutique that puts clients first. They understand the stress of dealing with tax problems, and they will be your guide through the process. Don't wait. Time is of the essence. Call America First Tax Group. Here's the number. 800-806-1299. 800-806-1299. Or visit AmericaFirstTaxGroup.com slash Levin. Making your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. I just wanted to mention... Our most advanced stealth fighter, loaded with cutting-edge technology that no other country has. One of them, on the USS Carl Vinson in the South China Sea, slipped off of the deck and sunk into the ocean. Now, according to the Daily Mail, and I've not seen this anywhere else, Race to beat China to recover $100 million U.S. F-35 stealth fighter from bottom of South China Sea after it crash-landed on aircraft carrier USS Carl Vinson. I wouldn't say crash-landed, but in any event, it slipped off the deck and fell into the ocean. Fierce secret technology from America's most advanced jet can fall into enemy hands. The Navy said the stealth fighter subsequently fell into the water with the landing mishap. It is packed with the latest technology and advances in radar deflecting design. It's currently in the South China Sea taking part in exercises. The pilot, safely ejected, rescued by helicopter, seven were injured, three required evacuation. Now... It leaves the Navy, they write, with a complex salvage operation if it is to avoid its most sophisticated warplane falling into Chinese hands. Now, I must tell you, I am confounded here. Obviously, the Navy knows exactly where this jet fell into the ocean, right, Mr. Producer? Is there a reason why they don't effectively cordon off the area? with other ships or or monitor the area like close up um, in order to ensure that uh, that in fact the Chinese don't get to it it carries an arrestor hook to help it land on aircraft carriers and the expanded wingspan needed to be launched by catapult as well as its radar-avoiding design, it is crammed with sensors that beam updates directly to the pilot's helmet. Last year, Britain appealed to the U.S. for help in finding an F-35B Lightning II that toppled from His Majesty's Queen Elizabeth into the Mediterranean during a failed takeoff, fearing that Russia would try to salvage the jet and copy the technology. It was retrieved last month during a secret operation. 
U.S. Navy jet was part of a deployment designed to bolster American presence near Taiwan after China had buzzed the island's airspace. Let's see here. So that's, that's, that's the bottom line. The Pentagon said two U.S. Navy carrier strike groups led by the U.S. Carl Vinson and the U.S. Abraham Lincoln began operations in the South China Sea on Sunday. They entered the disputed sea for training as Taiwan reported a new Chinese Air Force incursion at the top of the waterway. The Vinson is supported by more than 5,000 crew members, 65 fixed and rotary wing aircraft. And uh, that's the situation. Landing gear on the jet failed to extend, but instead of ejecting, the pilot decided to land the U.S.-made aircraft in an air base on its belly. That's another instance uh, where there was a problem. We better hope to God they don't get this jet. And we better do everything humanly possible to make sure they don't get this jet. Or the Communist Chinese Air Force by stealing our technology, we'll be able to advance its technology by 30 years without having invented a damn thing. And it is the technological edge that keeps us ahead of the enemy. So let us hope that's done and done right and done fast. We've talked about on this program, probably more than any other program, on Levin TV and on my Fox show, about the electrical grid and how it is exposed to the enemy. Russia knows that our electrical grid is exposed. A cyber attack on the electrical grid can shut it down. Can shut it down. The communist Chinese have killer satellites that can take our our satellites out and blind our military, the GPS systems that are used, including by the infantry in the field. We've known this for a long time, which is exactly why President Trump started the Space Force, given the bureaucracy at the Air Force, and I don't mean the Air Force pilots and personnel, I mean at the top, and the resistance there. So he broke it off so, so it could uh, direct its attention full-time every day to the battle in space because the communist Chinese are there first very very serious times very serious the uh, people say why, why do we care about Ukraine a lot of people say this why do we care about Ukraine I think to myself We're not really that stupid, are we? That we don't understand why we care about it? I spent a lot of time on that yesterday, as you know. One of the reasons I said yesterday, and I believe this, is that Putin isn't going to stop in the Ukraine. There are four NATO countries that share a border with Ukraine. And what else will happen? Well, our other enemies, again, will see that that we're incapable of doing anything. And they will move. They will move. And uh, these problems are going to start to pile up and get worse and worse. What else will happen? Russia itself will be further motivated to take action. So doing nothing doesn't just mean that there's no cost. Doing nothing means there's severe cost. It gets bigger and broader and deeper as we've seen throughout not just world history but our own history. I'm not a military expert. Well, what what should we do? I would arm up Ukraine as much as possible. We should have been doing that a long time ago. And of course the the events, the provocative events that led up to this point with the Biden administration showing appeasement whether it's that oil pipeline or surrendering basically on the uh, 
nuclear arsenal that that Putin has, and on and on and on, or just the the installment of Biden looking at him, taking the measure of the man, could be provocative enough. But there's a lot of consequences that result from these events. A lot of consequences that result. So it's not something we can just blow off. All right, there's other things I want to get into. Just a couple of quick things. This group, Media Matters, when I mentioned Soros in the context of the Nazis the other night, they went nuts, didn't they, Mr. Producer? They just flipped out. It was all hands on deck because that's their sugar daddy. It's the sugar daddy of the Democrat Party. It's the sugar daddy of all the radical left American Marxists, NGOs, and other charitable organizations. And so they, they go on immediate attack. That Levin said Soros assisted the Nazis. I only took Soros's own words. The interview was 60 Minutes several years ago. He said he had no, no compunction, no regrets about what he did. His father was a well-to-do, fairly wealthy, I believe, attorney there in Hungary. He had a, uh, a Nazi who was uh, a Christian, adopt, uh, at least born a Christian, act like he adopted his son, who they would then claim was Christian, and he would go door-to-door on behalf of the Nazis and steal the property of, uh, of the Soros neighbors and others. He was asked if he had any regrets about it. He said no. He was asked, pretty much when you think back on this, you know, again, my language, does it upset you? Pretty much he said no. How dare I reference him in context with the Nazis, Mr. Producer? But that really wasn't the point of the entire discussion. And Media Matters knows it, but they don't care. They'll defend Soros and they'll smear anybody who dares to bring up his past. And how he did in fact work with his phony father in the taking of property from Jews. I assume that helped the Nazis. Why else do it? They've also defended Black Lives Matter. We talked about that. The Black Lives Matter chapter in Washington, D.C., said, why, why do we call cops who are shot heroic? Media managers didn't have a problem with that. They don't have a problem with that. So that's the organization that so much of the media look at. They know they're filled with reprobate, uh, reprobates and miscreants and malcontents. They know they're an operation of the radical Marxists left in this country, and they shouldn't have a nonprofit, in my view, uh, tax designation. But they do. But it doesn't matter. They're not investigated. They're not charged. Are they? Lots more. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. 
You're listening to the best of Mark Levin. Okay, folks. On March 8, 1802, just days after Thomas Jefferson's followers, the Republicans took control of both houses of Congress because uh, Jefferson had won the presidency also, Congress repealed the Judiciary Act of 1801. On April 29, 1802, Congress enacted the Judiciary Act of 1802, which, among other things, abolished the 16 new judgeships created by President Adams and his Federalist Party. See, Adams tried to rush it through as fast as he could because of the delay between the election and uh, Jefferson's inauguration. In its 1803 Marbury versus Madison decision, the Supreme Court determined it had the power to decide cases about the constitutionality of congressional or executive actions. And when it deemed they violated the Constitution, overturned them. The shorthand label given to this court made authority is judicial review. And this quite literally is the foundation for the runaway power exercised by the federal courts to this day. What is far less recognized is that Marbury started out as anything but the ominous precedent it has become. It was a brilliantly conceived political strategy crafted by John Marshall, a master politician. Marshall, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, wrote the decision not to set a revolutionary precedent, but to deny the new president, Thomas Jefferson, his longtime political rival, an opportunity to rebuff a Supreme Court controlled by Jefferson's Federalist opponents. This is Levin's take, based on my reading of history. Marbury was precipitated by the election of 1800, in which Jefferson, the incumbent vice president and leader of the Republicans, ran for president against the incumbent president, John Adams, leader of the Federalists. The Federalists controlled both houses of Congress, but were torn between the followers of Adams and Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton's faction withheld its support for Adams' re-election bid in 1800, and the race ended in an electoral college tie between Jefferson and his vice presidential running mate, Aaron Burr. This is what brought us the 12th Amendment, by the way. Adams came in third. The election was then thrown into the House of Representatives. Realizing it would not win re-election, Adams moved to solidify his party's influence in the federal government. The passage of the Judiciary Act of 1801, creating 16 new federal circuit judgeships, was part of his strategy. Just prior to leaving office, Adams selected in the Federalist-controlled lame-duck Senate-confirmed nominees to fill the posts. Adams' turn ran out, however, before John Marshall, who was then Secretary of State, could actually deliver the commissions of office to some of the designees. Let me stop there. There is no way Marshall should have even been involved in this decision, as I explain in the book later. He had a conflict of interest. He had a conflict of interest. He was the Secretary of State who would deliver the commissions for his president and his party that lost. Marshall's successor as Secretary of State, James Madison, refused to deliver the commissions as Jeffers, at Jefferson's direction. And William Marbury, among others, filed suit in federal court seeking an order, writ of mandamus, directing Madison to deliver him his judgeship as Justice of the Peace, his commission. Marshall, long a rival at Jefferson's in Virginia politics, was one of the most articulate leaders in the Federalist Party. Marshall had served in the Virginia State House, the U.S. House of Representatives, and was one of President Adams' representatives to France in 1797, and then, of course, Secretary of State. He was nominated to be Chief Justice by President Adams and assumed the post on February 4, 1801, exactly one month before Adams' term ended. So he was appointed and confirmed quickly after Jefferson had won the presidency. With the Republican majority elected to both houses in Congress in 1800, Marshall realized that Jefferson and his Republicans could denude the Supreme Court of authority and that he, as Chief Justice, would be impeached and removed from office, given the way he was appointed. This is Mark speaking. Marshall understood that in Marbury case, if he ordered Secretary of State Madison to deliver Marbury's commission to office, Jefferson would order Madison to ignore the Supreme Court's writ and the court's authority would be seriously weakened. Marshall was also concerned that he not be seen as protecting the interests of the Federalist jurists, like Marbury, who had assumed his position as a justice of the peace and had been hearing cases and issuing judgments for a year. Bearing all this mind, Chief Justice Marshall's decision of Marbury, while upsetting the Constitution's balance of power and the relationship between the federal government and the states, 
was a master political stroke. Marshall stated that Marbury, consistent with legal doctrine at the time, had something akin to a property right to the office, to which he had been nominated and confirmed. Marshall also said the federal judiciary should be able to issue an order directing the appointment of of, uh, Marbury, but because the Constitution did not enumerate such an original right for the Supreme Court, well, the court was powerless to do it. Then Marshall went well beyond the specific issues in the case. He could have ended it right there. But he said that the court had a responsibility to set aside acts of Congress that violate principles enumerated in the Constitution. I don't have time to read what he said, but it's here. Marshall's Federalist Party had lost the presidency in Congress, but Marshall was determined to fight back. And so the doctrine of judicial review was born. Yes, the Constitution is indeed the supreme law of the land. But now the court, by its own fiat, would decide what is or is not constitutional. The Constitution's structure, including the balance of power between the three branches, was now disturbed, if not broken. Although Jefferson is claimed by modern Democrats as the father of their political party, he was a leading opponent of judicial activism. After Marbury, Jefferson became an even more vocal critic of what he viewed as the overreaching of the judiciary under Marshall's leadership. To Abigail Adams, John Adams' wife, Jefferson wrote a year after Marbury, quote, The Constitution meant that its coordinate branches should be checks on each other. But the opinion which gives to the judges the right to decide what laws are constitutional, what not, not only for themselves and their own sphere of action, but for the legislature and the executive, also in their spheres, would make the judiciary a despotic branch. And it goes on. The Constitution would not have been ratified. It would not have enough votes to ratify. Nine states. If the assumption of judicial review under Marshall had been explicitly stated in the Constitution itself, there's no way. Now, what does this have to do with January 6th? The Constitution explicitly says that Article 2, Section 1, the second paragraph, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in Congress. This was understood by the states to mean that the legislatures would have the authority to make the determination on how they were selected. Very rarely in the Constitution did the framers reach out and specify a branch within the states. But here it did. The legislature. Not the governor. Not a state court. Not a board of election. The legislature decides. The United States Supreme Court in 2020, with all this judicial review power to reach into every cultural issue in the country, every classroom in the country, without limit, other than its own limitations, that it imposes rarely on itself, had the requirement to ensure that the the black letter law, the text of the Constitution was upheld. This language is not confusing. It's not confounding. It's as clear as night and day. And it was clearly violated in the 2020 election in one state after another, purposely, by Democrats and the Democrat Party, by individuals who they hired, hitmen litigators, like Mark Elias and others, who went around the Republican state legislatures in the Republican states, including Republican states with Republican executives who are irrelevant to this process, except under law, which I'll get to in a moment, and defied the Constitution. The Supreme Court failed to act, claiming judicial review in the past for the last 200 and some years. But in this case, it chose to duck That sent the matter to the United States Congress to decide. And so what they do at National Review and elsewhere, I'm not just picking on them, they go to the Electoral Count Act of 1887, which is an enormously complex law. In fact, it is a contradicting law in many respects. Um, 
Under the 12th Amendment of the Constitution, the Vice President, who is the President of the Senate, undertakes the task of opening the electoral certificates. The Vice President's role is limited. Now, both houses can overrule the Vice President's decision to include or exclude votes. The Vice President's role to include or exclude votes can be overruled by both houses. And if there's a tie, say, between the House of a state and a Senate of a state, the governor's certification trumps, according to the statute. According to the statute. Now, decisions have been made by vice presidents serving as president of the Senate with respect to the electoral count. 1961, Richard Nixon. He allowed late filed votes to count, even though they were against him. In 69, Hubert Humphrey, having run for president in 68, decided he better recuse himself from the count, which is what he did. There have been challenges, really, since the beginning of our country to elections of presidents and vice presidents. I mean, why did they pass this law in 1887 to begin with? Because of the great battle in 1876. That's why. Where does Congress have the authority to pass a law like this? Does it have the authority to pass a law like this? Well, setting procedures for the counting. Do they have the power to exclude the vice president as president of the Senate to have any effective role other than as a secretary, administrator, opening envelopes and making pronouncements about what he's received? What if you're president of the Senate, you're vice president of the United States, and you know there's disputes in states? You know there's a constitutional dispute in a state like Pennsylvania. And you, as the president of the Senate and as vice president, you you have an oath to uphold the Constitution too. And you read that second paragraph under Article 2, Section 1. Each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct. Full stop. As the legislature thereof may direct. And you know as a matter of fact that that is not only in dispute, that that did not occur. And then you have people arguing, but the electors were selected and sent to the archivist of the United States by the governor. And yet it's the legislature that's challenging the governor. We're told too bad. The Vice President of the United States does not have any explicit power under the Constitution to do anything. In fact, we look at the 1887 statute and the way that we interpret it is that his role is utterly ministerial. You mean like judicial review? Where is judicial review in the Constitution? Well, somebody has to make the final decision. Well, where is the president of the Senate's role if he or she know, knows or believes that some of the electors being sent to the archivist and then to the joint session of Congress are in effect spoiled? Because there's a dispute between the legislature and the governor, but the governor, nonetheless, signs the accreditation. So when I read articles like Trump's absurd attack on Pence, and these guys, of course, they're not going to talk about the Constitution, they're not going to talk about past disputes and challenges, they're not going to talk about Article 2, Uh, Section 1, Paragraph 2, 
they're just going to dismiss Trump. Whether by hook or by crook. Trump has a better understanding than they do. Trump has a better understanding than they do, either intuitively or otherwise. Joining the mob and telling us and telling us something that's not true because you can't demonstrate it under the Constitution of the United States serves no purpose but to mislead the American people. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. Have you gotten your letter from the IRS yet? These last few years have not been easy on the American family. And with tax season finally arriving, there'll be millions of hardworking people and businesses that could struggle even more due to the IRS working against them. Well, America First Tax Group can help put an end to your worries. Just one phone call to 800-806-1299. Hello, 800-806-1299. And you'll be in touch with the America First Tax Group, a full-service tax company that'll fight the IRS and help put you on the path to financial freedom. Their experts can help you or your business with any tax-related problems you may have, from dealing with your back taxes to granting you access to tax relief and much more. Don't wait. Get in touch with America First Tax Group today by calling 800-806-1299. That's 800-806-1299 or AmericaFirstTaxGroup.com slash Levin. Again, 800-806-1299 or AmericaFirstTaxGroup.com. Dot com slash L-E-V-I-N. The Great One makes your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. Insurrection, January 6th. Well, if there was an insurrection, broadly defined, it began well before January 6th, didn't it? The Capitol bully wasn't stormed before January 6th, during the election, of course. But the changes to the laws involved in selecting a president and a vice president, in many cases, were in violation of the federal constitution. That's very specific. And it was violated by judges. It was violated by governors. It was violated by bureaucrats. It was violated by billionaires. It was violated by local administrators. If we're going to call it an insurrection, and the insurrection began long before January 6th, and this is what the pseudo-conservatives, the never-Trumpers, the media and the Marxist left do not want to discuss. They'll tell you 66 lawsuits. Nobody wanted to hear any. But the judges heard a lot of lawsuits from the Democrats and in most cases upheld the changes in laws. Uh, And of course we have a a brave appellate court in Pennsylvania that just ruled too. So let's not pretend that things were going to be changed or all changed on January 6th. Things were changed long before that. And now when Republican legislatures are trying to fix it, they are accused of acting like Jim Crow. Get it, folks? See how it works? I hope you'll replay this entire hour for family and friends. Mark Levin. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. We're giving you nothing but the best, the best of Mark Levin. Well, the media flacking for the January 6th committee. Any surprise there, ladies and gentlemen? How about this story? By John Solomon's Just the News. A fantastic site, by the way. Liberal mega donor George Soros pumps $125 million into Super PAC to help Democrats in 2022 midterms. 
Soros says money will support causes, candidates, regardless of political party, but so far recipients all appear to be major Democrat PACs. Of course, it's not regardless of political party. He's their sugar daddy. He's the sugar daddy for the American Marxists. His money is everywhere. I don't know who's buying off more people and groups and politicians. Xi in the communist China or George Soros. It's amazing how this man's never investigated, not by Congress, not by the phony media outlets, not by any grand juries. This man wants to buy this election for the Democrats. He's putting $125 million, nobody's ever done that, into a super PAC to help the Democrats in the midterms. You are going to be flooded now with commercials that lie to you. You are going to be flooded now with flyers that are sent to you, you're going to be overwhelmed with this information. They're going to use that money, I am sure, to push out their vote. So that's now two billionaires who are openly pushing their agenda. Although in the case of Mark Zuckerberg, with his $417 million, he didn't do it openly. So when you count Zuckerberg and Soros, you're talking about over half a billion dollars by two men or radical leftists and surrogates of the Democrat Party, laundering this money through PACs, laundering this money through so-called nonprofit organizations. Let's go on. The piece says, let's see here, billionaire megadonor George Soros has poured $125 million into a super PAC this election cycle. The money already being distributed to political action committees backing Democrat candidates and causes. Now, Soros has used the super PAC known as Democracy PAC since 2019 to support political campaigns. It says the group's money will support causes and candidates that I just talked about. But the money is so far going to Democrat-leaning groups, including $2.5 million to the Senate Majority PAC, that's Schumer, $1 million to the House Majority PAC, that's Pelosi, $1 million to the Democrat Association of Secretaries of State, why? To affect the elections. A group fighting to elect Democrats to the formerly obscure posts that become a well-known and heavily politicized after the 2020 election. They're talking about secretaries of state and other positions of that sort. Soros calls his $125 million a long-term investment, quote-unquote, to continue supporting politicians and campaigns past 2020 because he's 90. There are no anal exams of this guy by the legal analysts out there. None. None. No. Nothing by the legal analysts out there. It's true. Soros' son, Alexander Soros, will serve as the president of the PAC. He cited the January 6th Capitol riot as an example of the ongoing efforts to discredit and undermine our electoral process. We just had a victory in Pennsylvania. And you watch that Pennsylvania Supreme Court, if it undermines that appellate court. That undermines our electoral process. That is an insurrection. One that's dressed up as a lawyerly, judge-made insurrection. He also argues such threats cannot be addressed in just one or two election cycles. You remember when the Black Panthers were threatening people at a voting precinct, Mr. Perdue? Remember that several election cycles ago? They stood right outside threatening people. Nothing ever happened. Isn't that amazing? Following its filing with the Federal Elections Commission, democracy PAC spending will be posted publicly in the coming days. Can't wait for that, but there's usually a long delay between that and the spending of the money. Usually a long delay. But the Democrats never play fair. Talked about it the first hour, talking about Soros. We've talked about Zuckerberg. Gerrymandering. There's gerrymandering. It's a throwback to slavery. But nobody does gerrymandering better than the Democrats, who would know something about slavery, actually, considering it occurred mostly under them. Over at our friends at Breitbart, DCCC, Democratic Campaign Congressional Committee, 
endorse. They like the letters, you know, like USSR. DCCC endorses aggressive gerrymander to leave New York with three Republican seats. Did you see this, Mr. Producer? You live in New York. It's a lot of people in New York. Do you think it would really be representative of the people of New York, including other areas of New York, central New York, north New York, closer to Canada? Do you think it would be representative of them to have three Republicans in the whole state in the House of Representatives? Unbelievable. Well, as long as you get those illegal aliens voting, everything will be copacetic. The Democrat Congressional Campaign Committee wants the New York legislature to approve an aggressive gerrymander that would leave New York with three Republican and 23 Democrat seats in Congress. Now let me tell you how the Democrats have manipulated in a very nefarious and unconscionable manner the 1965 Civil Rights Act. The point of the 1965 Civil Rights Act, among other things, is to ensure that congressional districts aren't drawn in a way as to deny minorities in particular, black people, their representation in Congress. That's the purpose in one major section. So what the Democrats do with the so-called Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, yuck, yuck, what they do is anytime districts are drawn that might help the Republicans, they go into federal court in the states that are covered, And they argue that they are trying to diminish the vote of minorities, particularly black citizens. You don't see that happening when the Democrats gerrymander, do you? And what the Democrats try to do is they try and put as many minorities in single districts as they possibly can. So they can have as many white Democrats in Congress as possible. Did you know that? So from time to time you'll see these lawsuits where the Republicans and the Black organizations are on the same side because the Democrat Party's playing the system. Now, I keep warning. We keep talking about 2022 as a blowout. Ladies and gentlemen, it may well be. And I pray to God that it is. But I'm not Nostradamus. I don't know what's going to happen. I see the polls. I see the, the pundits. I even hear some of the Democrats saying we're going to get blown out. Okay, I hope they do. But the Democrats are not rolling over and playing dead. Nobody, nobody is more sinister than the people who run that party and their lawyers. And what they are doing with gerrymandering right now is they're picking off a whole bunch of seats for themselves whether these people get elected or not. In other words, they're making certain that they are setting up these districts so only Democrats can win. You have a whole state in New York. You're going to wind up with three Republicans? In Maryland, they have one Republican House seat, Mr. Bidu. They're trying to eliminate it. They're trying to eliminate all representation of any Republican in the House of Representatives from the state of Maryland. So anybody who doesn't live in Montgomery County or Prince George's County or Baltimore really won't have their representation. These are the population pockets, and the Democrats use the population pockets to try and destroy any Republican districts. And this is the game. And so if the Republicans go in and they say, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We need to redraw that. Oh, you're taking a seat or two or three away from minorities. This is what the Democrats do. They are pernicious. They are evil. Did I say evil? I meant evil. This is how they play this game. And now they're going to use a lot of Soros' money to do it. Democracy pack. Who's he fooling? Who's he fooling? In his case, the whole pack should be called fascist pack. Because that's what they're promoting over there. In my humble opinion. And I know I'm right. There's been a lot of hubbub today. I don't even know what hubbub is, but there's been a lot of hubbub today about this call Biden had with the president of Ukraine, and there should be a lot of hubbub because there is a dispute over what actually took place. And uh, I heard our friend Kaylee McEnany, I heard her say, um, you know, this issue of transcripts that was brought up during Trump, The Democrats and the media, but particularly the Democrats, demanded 
the transcript from President Trump's call to the president of Ukraine, which was a perfectly fine call, perfectly fine. The way they twisted it and twisted the wording is disgusting, but that's what they do, much like they treat the Constitution. But anyway, so people are talking about consistency here. Let's release the transcript. And I hear some Republicans saying, no, you know, I want to tell you something. If we do not use the opportunity to do to them what they do to us, this will never stop. We need to ram their tactics down their damn throats. Joe Biden must be impeached. And I want Kevin McCarthy to hear me clearly. Steve Scalise. Elise Stefanik, the three leaders of the Republican Party. He has committed impeachable offenses. I'm not talking about a syllable here and there and a transcript. I know. What's going on in the southern border in and of itself. Failing to comply with existing federal statutes respecting immigration is an effort to completely upset the constitutional construct. You do not have the right, the power, you do not have it as president to only enforce laws you agree with. And when we reach that point, it's over. And we have got to fight these tripwires. We've got to do it. And so I am telling you that this issue, and there are other issues, need to be used. Now, if the Republicans are too scared to bring it up during the course of the election, they'll make their own decision. But I want to make it clear, if they take the House, there's not going to be any patience For them to use the base the way Boehner sought to use the base, the way Paul Ryan sought to use the base, or the way any of these other phony speakers tried to use the base. We have individuals in the other party who are destroying our country. And we cannot have Marcus of Queensbury rules on one side and UFC rules on the other. No. No. This man has committed an impeachable offense, if not impeachable offenses. And there ought to be discussion about the 25th Amendment, because the 25th Amendment was actually adopted for cases like this. Where a man in the Oval Office, or a woman, or somebody transitioning, or whatever the hell, that person has lost more than a few marbles. Who is running this executive branch? Who's running the Biden administration? And the point of a, an inquiry based on the 25th Amendment is to get to the bottom of that. Now, Bill, well, you've got to wait for this to trigger that to trigger. No, the House can look into it. They can't trigger it themselves, but there's a reason they can look into it. But impeachment is actually easier than the 25th Amendment. There's no two-thirds vote requirement in the House for conviction, of course. I'm talking about to open an investigation. They should put Jim Jordan at the top of that Judiciary Committee and start rolling. And maybe put put one of the more solid individuals who really believe in the Constitution and the rule of law to head of Homeland Security, where all the activities going on are lack thereof. This cannot stand. He's negotiating with the Iranian regime, the Islamo-Nazi regime in Tehran, in secret. Congress, at least the Republicans, don't have the foggiest idea what's going on. On a matter of life and death. That bastard regime is trying to get ICBMs with nuclear warheads. What's that all about? And they ought to open a full-scale investigation... Not on Hunter Biden, not on Frank Biden, on Joe Biden, who's in the Oval Office. On Joe Biden, to determine the extent to which he's been bought off by the Chinese regime or any other regime. Joe Biden was always a political thug. Nasty, rotten, the way he treated other people. 
who didn't deserve it. Bork, Thomas, others who didn't deserve it. We've had enough of sitting on our hands and watching this stuff. It's enough already. They're still chasing Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago. Still, still going after his taxes. Still going after his kids. Trying to pin January 6th on the President of the United States at the time, when he's the one that offered up the National Guard. Meanwhile, they're Helen Keller when it comes to Nancy Pelosi. Well, of course. That's what news anchors today, tonight, tomorrow should be asking Jim Jordan and others. How is it that she gets away with this? Nancy Pelosi. I want to say... Brett Baer did ask Liz Cheney that question, by the way, when she was on his show. By the way, Liz, uh, we always have an open time for you to come on the program. You used to come on all the time when you were running for office and so forth. We'd love to have you back. We would, Liz. 